Good day, beautiful podcast family. I hope that wherever you are on this planet, you're doing tremendous. And I'm sending my prayers your way, wishing you, your family, your friends, and everybody you love all the best. We've got an absolutely amazing episode of the show for you today. We have Andrew Thorpe King on, and we're talking about the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. This is a phenomenal episode. Failure is such an important thing to have the most empowering perspective on, and this is a masterclass. We talk about authenticity and the challenge around remaining authentic. We talk about um, failure, what it is. We define failure, and we define success. And uh, Andrew Thorpe King, he does his own definitions of those, which I think are um, amazing. We talk about marrying money and meaning. Um, I go into a little bit about this tree of life geometry aspect to how these things kind of coincide. We talk about not non-attachment and the five rules of failure and how you can apply them to your own life. So this is a phenomenal episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. And um, if you're somebody who wants to create in this world, you are someone who wants to be an entrepreneur or you're an artist or just in general life, it's it's a very empowering perspective to really master failure. And this is really a phenomenal episode on that. So if you enjoyed the show, please share it far and wide. Consider becoming a member at mattbelair.com where you are going to get exclusive content, including the entire Soul Compass course, which is designed to help you find your life path, your life purpose, and give you tools to actually get there. And if you want to go a step further and you want to work with me on removing blocks, getting crystal clear, designing a plan and actually executing to a level of mastery hit me up mattbelair.com forward slash coaching i'd love to hear from you and work with you and um if you go to the membership area you can get it for free or by donation i think i mentioned that but i'm not sure and what else um if you leave us a review in itunes that would be phenomenal and very very appreciated and the best thing you can do as always to support the show is three kind acts wherever you are in the world today do something kind for somebody else that would be the best way to support the show and i would appreciate that and so would the person who receives that i'm sure so let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we dive into the show wherever you are in the world just stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and let it out slowly filling every cell muscle and fiber of your being with joy peace contentment enthusiasm optimism faith courage energy and get ready to enjoy this amazing episode with andrew thorpe king Hello and welcome to the Mastermind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest is an executive fintech banker, spy novelist, speaker, punk rocker, podcaster, ex-bodybuilder, cigar lover, and serial entrepreneur. He founded two independent record labels and has invested in many different spaces. He is also a serial failure. He has crashed and burned through bankruptcy, divorce, mortgage default, public assistance, and multiple multiple business failures. But he pops up every time rebuilding his life informed by failure with a big smile on his face. He is the author of Failure Rules, the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. Welcome to the show, Andrew Thorpe King. My man, thanks for having me. Psyched to uh, get into some good conversation with you. 
Yeah, man. Well, I, I before we start, I, I had a look at your work and I, I love your videos where you're sitting with a cigar in the hot tub and uh, just talking about life. And I got to look through the book and I just think that what you're speaking about is so relevant. We talk about it on the podcast a lot, you know, failure, but you've also achieved a lot of success. So it's kind of funny that you wrote a book on failure. Um, so I just love for you to just introduce yourself to the audience, you know, tell us a little bit about your very eclectic and exciting and uh, I don't know, there's your background and your work and all that stuff looks like uh, a good story in itself. I'm sure there's a lot of great hot tub stories that go around. <laughs> That's right. Well, that is where I do my best thinking. That's where all the crystallization occurs when I'm, you know, puffing on a cigar in the hot tub and uh, just uh, unpacking my day and planning my, uh, my my next moves. Right. So yeah. So uh, background. Um, you you kind of went through it the bio there, but you know, throughout my 20s and 30s, did a lot of what I call off-road entrepreneurial venturing. I uh, consider myself both an entrepreneur, both by by nature and at times by necessity. I'm also a creative, so you know, wrote a spy novel and really into music, uh, hardcore punk rock metal stuff like that. But uh, yeah, most of my career was pretty much a dual career uh, between the music industry and banking and finance. Many different manifestations in banking and finance. So I own two record labels, Thorpe Records, which is mostly dedicated to heavy stuff, hardcore metal, uh, classic bands like Madball, Blood for Blood, Sheer Terror, Slapshot. I put out records for. The other label, Sailor's Grave Records, is more street punk, uh, oi, or pub rock, street rock, psychobilly, uh, classic bands like the U.S. Bombs, which was fronted by the professional skateboarder Dwayne Peters, um, The Business, which was a, 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 a seminal oi band from England, um, bands like Roger Martin, The Disasters, psychobilly bands like from Canada, like The Creep Show and The Brains, uh, and lots of other great acts uh, put out uh, between the two records, over 100 records in the past 20 years. Um, I did that and then also been working in banking and finance, everything from uh, having an online lending business as partnered with somebody on. Uh, we had, uh, you know, uh, a license uh, in the country of Belize. We had one in the States, uh, the lead generation, financial planning. Um, and now I work um, in fintech, so financial technology, working for an online commercial bank that kind of powers a lot of the kind of cool apps that you deal with, you know, like the Chimes, the Venmos, the PayPals of the world. So done all that. Also written a spy novel, owned a gym at one point. Uh, and now here I am kind of like bringing all these disparate interests and disparate um, entrepreneurial experiences together under one roof with my book, Failure Rules, The Five Rules of Failure for Entrepreneurs, Creators, and Authentics, where I really kind of in the book layer in what I feel like I've learned in terms of lessons that will enable one to anticipate failure, also avoid it when it's possible, uh, but when it's not, to appreciate it, leverage it, metabolize it, optimize it to help them grow, like the author Nassim Tlaib of Anti-Fragile talks about, that where you don't just get up from failure or from being struck by harm. You don't just restore, right? You get up and you get up with an exponential growth, like a hydra, right? So you gain from harm. So like that's kind of the theme of the book. I go through a lot of my stories. I, I kind of distill them down to uh, you know these five overarching rules that have kind of sub-lessons underneath them. Uh, as well as layered in, you know, a wide array of case studies to give it context and, and to give it kind of more accessibility. I mean, everybody from uh, author Stephanie Lan of The Maid, Gene Simmons from Kiss, uh, podcaster James Altucher, legendary boxer Jack Johnson, professional bowler uh, Tom Smallwood, Lenny Kilmister of Motorhead, Ryan Holiday, all kinds of different people I bring in here under this umbrella uh, to give it uh, as much kind of artistic, philosophical, and storied background to bring these lessons and these ideas to life for people to pick at. 
Well, I love that you have a very fascinating background. And like I said, at the beginning, it's interesting because you've had a lot of success and then you chose to write a book about failure. And so, um, you know, what, what, what made you want to write the book about failure and not like some of your successes or like, what was the importance of, of helping people to understand, like, look, if you're going to go for something, then you're going to fail. And, and this is something that helped me succeed. Well, I think it's the, it's the part that nobody wants to emphasize, right? Everybody says, oh, go after your dreams, go for it, do this. Or, or they don't. They say, go the safe way. Um, uh, and those that say go the safe way are often saying that because they know that many times the more difficult way or sometimes for many people, the way that more aligns with their true calling that utilizes the most unique um, composite of their talent stack often is littered with more difficulty. And when you have more difficulty, you're inevitably going to have more failure, more hard times, more uh, roadblocks, right? And nobody really wants to talk about that. People only want to talk about the blue sky, the success, you know, the endpoints. And that's really kind of not the point. I found that the journey itself really is the destination, of course. That sounds cliche, but I think it really is true. So I talk about a calling journey in the book, right? Where your calling isn't some one end destination. It's kind of like Simon Sinek's you know, concept of the infinite game, where your, your, your goal is to try to be in the game for as long as possible, not win the game and, and go retire on a, on a beach with, with the margaritas. I mean, you know, don't be wrong. I like drinking on the beach. I prefer bourbon, not a margarita. But, you know, the, the idea is to find that game for you, where you're using your most unique talent stack and you are able to receive and put out the most meaning in the world. And when you're in that game, you don't want to get out of that game. You want to find a way to stay in the game, right? It's like this idea of like people that kind of uh, deify or worship money where it's like, well, why are you doing that, right? I mean, money is only as good as the good it facilitates. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't go to a gas station because we worship and love gas. We just need the gas to keep going, right? Like, I mean, that, that's the idea. So it, it's, 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 it's as much about trying to hear your internal spirit voice and find out what it is you're supposed to do and your next best steps uh, to align with your true calling journey as it is about, um, you know, premeditatively thinking about how you're going to handle failure and potentially even leverage it to be uh, part of the, the, the fulcrum even of your unique success story in the future. Yeah, I love all that. And for you being a creative, did you have a decision in your life where you went from like a, a regular job where I think that's where most people are in their lives where they have a job and financial responsibilities, which is important. A lot of people have kids, a lot of people have families and you got to, you know, we need money to live. So you've got this job that puts food on the table and it's a, a sure paycheck. And I feel like what we're taught and conditioned to do is get the job that gives us the most amount of money with work we can tolerate, right? Not love. We can tolerate it, gives us a little bit of opportunity to growth. And then we have enough vacation time. And it's like the easiest thing for us to do based on our, our education, our background and our opportunities. I think that's what most people do um, rather than thinking like, who am I? You know, what do I want to do? What, what really inspires me? And so it seems like you have this practical side, but this really creative side. And so was there a point where you had to like make that transition and, and go towards your creative uh, endeavors or the things that more inspired you? Well, I, th I think you just put it succinctly there where I have the practical side and the creative side. And so my life has really been a, a, a challenge to try to marry those two sides, marry money and meaning, right? So, you know, you, you, without money, you're going to be miserable. And without meaning, you're going to be miserable too, right? So how can you marry the both of them? 
You know, and one of the things I talk about in the book is a portfolio of pursuits mentality where you're going to have different percentages of money and meaning in different spheres or verticals or areas of your life. So I really try to approach life with this composite mindset, this portfolio of pursuits mindset where I have different things going on in any given time. And then certain things might sever uh, and other things might might be onboarded into this portfolio. Right. So, you know, for instance, there was a time where I owned a gym. I owned an online lending company. I was writing my first spy novel. I was consulting in the music industry and I was running my record labels all at once. Right. Because that was my portfolio of pursuits at that time. It's now shifted. Now it's I'm promoting failure rules. I'm working in fintech and I'm running my record labels. They're, they're kind of, that's kind of my portfolio of pursuits, right? But at any given time, each one of those efforts or pursuits brings a different percentage uh, of either money or meaning to my life, right? Uh, and so if one is low in one area, if you're compensating in the other area on the aggregate, you actually feel really, really fulfilled. So I found that to be really true in terms of balancing the marriage of money and meaning. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, you know, working in fintech, I get a lot of meaning out of it, but I get much more money than I get out of, than I do get meaning out of it, right? Uh, and then I get even more meaning out of it because it powers finances and allows me to cross pollinate skills that I gain from that into the other work I do. I'm into failure rules, even the way that I've structured my my plan to promote the book and to try to find ways to uh, get this message out here in various formats over the next few years and from the book launch and everything else. Like there are skills I've transferred from my, my job in fintech into this. Uh, the money I make there helped to finance a lot of, uh, of putting the book out, right? Which gives a more rich narrative even to the meaning of the day job, right? So when you're doing things that are powered by your day job, that are more aimed and targeted towards your aspirational North Star dream, it gives even more meaning to, to, to that job, right? So failure rule number four is called build your thing one and thing two dependency. So it's really a failure prevention strategy. And thing one is your enabler pursuit, right? So it might be just some scaffolding, some structures, something that maybe more safely enables you to go after your North Star dream, even though your dreams aren't safe. Failure rule number two is nothing is safe, but you still mm -hmm. want to make it as safe as possible. So your enabler pursuit helps you to do that, right? Uh, a, a little more safely. I mean, the obvious um, example is bang down a nine to five and side hustle your dream on the side. I guess there are many other examples in the book that are more creative. Um, so one example would be... Um, uh, this guy, Chris Wren, who founded Bridge Nine Records, which is a, a hardcore punk rock label uh, from the Boston area, founded 25 years ago or so. Um, he didn't have any money as a young kid to start his record label, but he didn't just work a day job and, 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 and you know, save up to start his record label. He did another creative thing, one enabler pursuit. So he started a merchandise company called Yankee Suck. And he sold Yankee Suck merchandise at Red Sox games, <laughs> high profit, easy to do. <laughs> hustled that through what would what some would call good money after bad and invested the profits into bridge nine records which was his thing to north star aspirational dream you know that was his meaning pursuit uh and that underwrote like the first 16 17 records of his record label hundreds of releases label later decades later that still stands right and he's done other entrepreneurial things too but it's that kind of creative thinking of having uh you know not just thinking you can just go after your your dream all the time straight head on it's thinking more creatively about that scaffolding and having layers of, of structure and, and different um, pursuits with different elements, you know, percentages of safety or meaning or money, you know, thinking more holistically. I love all that. And it's a, and it's incredibly practical approach 
I'm curious, how do you help first, like, if you're working with somebody or even talking to them in, in your hot tub, you know, how do you help them first kind of get aligned on that meaningful, um, you know, pursuit? Like if you're like, I don't even know what I want to do, or if they're a little bit further along the line, how do you help them overcome that fear? You know, like the biggest fear I think most people have is never starting you being an ex bodybuilder. You also know the value of health and, and staying fit. And you recognize that most people are out of shape because they don't go to the gym. But the biggest barrier is just going the first time, right? Is getting out there and doing yeah. it. And if you can have a very powerful mindset with pursuing your passions, and like you already said, you can have your structure set up. So you're not going to fall right down. You, you're, you're hitting your base needs. You're not going to be homeless on the street. You know, you've got that covered. Yep. And I like how you merge the two because the one feeds the other, right? right. You know, even with my podcast, if I were uh, super balling, I could invest more into the podcast. I could do more into these other pursuits. And so the money will fuel your, your meaning and purpose. And so That's it's right. important though, that you have that direction of something that you're inspired to put it towards, because if you don't have it, then you just go into materialism and that that's right. goes pretty quick. You're like, okay, great. I got all the stuff that's material, but it's short-sighted. And even if you had, like, I was just thinking of an example, if you're a, a dad and you had a job you hated, but you knew that working that job got your kid into hockey or sports and you see the joy with the, whatever they're yep. doing, like that's the meaning of that job. Then you just take it a step further. You start with where you are and then you can take it a step further and take it a step further, applying the same principles. Absolutely. I'm actually touching on, on, on the, the idea of money being a facilitator of good, a facilitator of meaning. Failure rule number three in the book is money is spiritual. And it's the idea that, you know, if, if money is used correctly, viewed correctly, it's an agnostic tool, right? So it's not inherently good or evil, but it has a spiritual power, right? If you stay away from the edge territories of envy and greed, which I view as malevolent or malevolent twin siblings, you stay away from those territories then money itself can be a force multiplier of good. It can be something that can that can really, you know, it, it's a it's a measurement of gratitude. Uh, place value is measured is measured thankfulness. You know, every time you have a transaction, uh, and it's the idea that uh, it really is to be a tool to help us to not only provide for ourselves and our family, uh, but particularly if you're blessed with any little bit of excess and a vision on how to use it to do something of scale, to bless the world, whether it's a creative pursuit or whether it's something very practical, like starting a homeless shelter, whatever it is, money can be a very powerful spiritual tool. Now, obviously, again, edge failure territories of greed and, and envy, want to stay away from, but I think too many people only view money through that lens. It's either baseline, you know, non-spiritual, practical tool that mostly leads people astray in envy and greed. And most people only focus on greed. And I think that we we get a lot more out of it when we view it from the lens of money being spiritual. Going back to kind of what you're talking about in terms of talking to somebody who might be, uh, you know, in that, at the starting gate, where they don't know what their meaning is or how to discover it. They don't know, even if they know what their meaning is, how to, you know, get that activation energy to do something about it. You know, like, I, I go back to just the old mantra that, you know, I think I hear uh, Rich Roll talks about a lot, which is, you know, the reality is mood follows action. You know, sometimes you just have to invoke dispassionate grunt action with a plan on paper uh, with the force of your will and just have that faith and that knowledge that at some point uh, mood, the good positive emotion will follow you. Right. And that's not always immediate, just like going to the gym. It's not immediate, but it's having that faith and, and that understanding that uh, usually those that have positive emotion and good things happening in their life 
it's a result of them doing things that they might not have wanted to do when they started or weren't sure that were the right thing. But you, they, they, you just go out and you just start doing something. And even if it ends up not being um, the ultimate uh, path, it often leads you to your next best steps just from the from the momentum of getting going. It, it's revelatory. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I'm reminded kind of like of the Zen philosophy of non-attachment, right? You do something, but don't be attached to the outcome. You can have goals in mind, have dreams and like, okay, this is what I'm aiming for. And that's all great. Just don't be attached to the outcome, really engage in the process, right? And you know this from physical and even from entrepreneurship. It's like, well, what do you want to create? Why are you inspired to create that? Create that. And even if one person listens to this podcast when I started or one person reads your book, if you have a really aligned and meaningful intent with what you did, then that's good. Cause maybe you helped, you know, you followed your own gut, your own intuition, and that's enough always. And if it can explode into something where, you know, it's big and you go on Oprah or whatever the case is, that's, that's phenomenal too. That's just icing on the cake from following that step and you build upon each step. So all of your entrepreneurial endeavors, I'm sure helped you with each other avenue you did because you kept taking action. And what happens is people get crippled with fear. They take no action because they don't want to fail. And because of that, they don't have all these experiences they can learn and grow from. And I'm curious your, you know, best bit of advice for just that, you know, they're afraid to do it. And and what's, what are they, you know, what would you recommend They're They want to do it, but they're afraid of failure or it's weird because the people that I've coached in the past, um, that are really good at something, they're so afraid to share their writing. They're so afraid to share their art. They're afraid to share their, and they're really good and they're really talented. And the people who suck at it, like me, I'm like, I'll post a picture on Instagram right now of some piece of crap that I drew because I have no attachment to people thinking I'm good or not right. good at that. You know what I mean? So for them yeah. because they've attached their identity, they're really afraid of what the feedback might get and how people might receive it. Yeah. So yeah, you're hitting the nail right on the head. So I have a chapter uh, in the book called "Detach from the the negative op- detach from the optics of failure, the negative optics of failure," uh, and that's under the section for failure rule number five, which is you are not your failure failures, which is all about decoupling your identity from your failures and your failure events, which means that you kind of you, you don't give a fuck what other people think, right? Like you want them to like what you're doing, uh, but at the same time, you know, creation is its own reward first. If there's any external reward that follows, that's just a bonus, but that's not why you do it, right? You have to do it for intrinsic reasons. Uh, and, you know, it's also this idea of going back to failure rule number two, nothing is safe. And because nothing is safe, you don't want to over-identify with any pursuit, right? Like you can identify them softly. Uh, you can be passionate about them. They can mean a lot to you. Uh, it might be something that over time really does help to define your story. But even then, it's that non-attachment. You do not want to you know, have hard attachments to pursuits or anything that might, you know, overinflate your identity or, or set you up for, uh, you know, potential uh, susceptibility to emptiness and depression should that thing get taken away, that pursuit get taken away, that, that, that uh, you know, whatever it is in your life, even if it's a relationship or if it's a material thing, it's a house, right? So I, do, I talk about non-attachment a lot in the book, I and mean, it's a very important theme throughout, right? Having experienced a lot of loss and change, and living in the material world where things shift and crumble, crumble, and it's the idea of having your attachments being first internal, right? And you can be committed to things, you can be passionate about things, but know that they will shift and crumble. They could shift and crumble, uh, and keep your attachments internal and eternal. As you're as you're sharing that, one thing that kind of comes to my mind is like the idea of 
epic failure. So let's just say that either in the person's mind, they have the idea of like what the worst failure would be, but maybe they experience it, right? They, they go all in on a business or whatever, and they don't kind of, you know, I don't know, go the safe route or whatever. And they're, they're in the middle of absolute decimating failure, like the bottom of the barrel. It sounds like you have maybe experienced that in your life. And I'm curious if you have any piece of advice for what that experience is like. And if, if someone's in it, how to begin to move through it and get out of it and rebuild. Mm. So that takes me back to probably one of my most impactful failure moments, right? So um, there was a time where I my record labels were ascending uh, I was working a day job in the music industry. So I had this vertical, in, vertical integration between my day job and what I was doing in the evenings, building my record labels. I did not take a cent from them for four years, just reinvested everything in there, and it started to do well. And so I decided to go out on a limb to go on my own. Still kind of naive at the time, not exactly know what I'm doing in terms of forecasting revenue and not really identifying all the risks. I went ahead and did this, had a young family of uh, of, of three, three kids at the time, um, I was, it was a one income household. So here I was an entrepreneur uh, and uh, did this for a few years. And there was an inflection point where I'd overinvested in some records, overextended myself in terms of um, uh, debt that I took on to, to fund and fuel and try to grow the record labels. Uh, and at the same time, there was a transition into the digitization of music, which was happening faster than anybody really anticipated and was having more immediate market changes than anybody uh, anticipated, particularly with large retail chains closing, sales plummeting, uh, product on the shelf being returned, which debits your account, and then adds additional fees attendant to those returns to make it even lower. So I, I had this convergence of a perfect storm, uh, and I tried to do everything I could to uh, find my way through it and was unable to do it. Um, and uh, it got to the point where um, I, I ended up having to uh, because of the personal credit I'd used to fund the record labels, I ended up declaring bankruptcy uh, at the time. So here I was having declared bankruptcy, wasn't able to draw an income from this. Uh, there was no unemployment to draw because I wasn't like, you know, on the books in terms of a payroll at, at that point. Right. I had to lay off the staff that I had. Uh, you know, there's maybe three or four people that were working for me in various capacities, young family, and uh, there was still some debt that was not part of the bankruptcy that I was going to, going to have to pay back. Uh, and I had only worked in the music industry uh, at that point in my life. Uh, this is maybe my late 20s. So I didn't really know how to reinvent myself or what to do, right? So, I mean, the day that that realization hit, I wrote about it in the book. It was a very low point. I mean, I was drunk in my office floor by noon, face on the floor, uh, burned the rest of the day in the strip club, just looking for any sort of approximation of love and comfort right? All these kind of material reactions, right? These kind of carnal reactions, it's kind of like desperation. Uh, and it was through that time that I ended up just really leaning on my spirituality, uh, my relationship with the divine, uh, and, um, you know, finding a way to reinvent. And I ended up, you know, going from being the, the tattooed, you know, music guy to uh, going into finance, and networking with high network individuals, net worth individuals uh, from cigar lounge I went to, from a gym that I went to, and then working on building up a financial planning practice. Uh, and that transformation was huge for me, right? It was the idea that being at that such low point where I couldn't see any way out, uh, the fact that through 
not giving up and through finding micro enthusiasm to latch on to, to keep me going as kind of an endorphin of the spirit that I was able to find like a pinprick of light and then open that up strenuously and, and, and find ways forward. Um, you know, that failure gave me the character and the conditioning to handle almost any other failure or hard time or tricky situation that I encountered, you know, for decades into the future. Wow. Well, that's a really powerful story. Just, you know, losing everything. And you shared that uh, you, you leaned on your relationship to the divine. So let's say someone is down that path. Like, did you, was it like, like a prayer or like an insight or, you know, it's, if we look at the dark side of things, when people want to commit suicide, it's because they feel there's no way out there. The hope yeah, is gone. Yeah, yeah. It's that last, yeah. you use the light, right? That last glimmer of light, like, can it get better? Or is tomorrow going to be as painful and as hopeless as, as it is today? And I need out, right? And I feel mm -hmm. like all of those people, everybody here has something to offer to the world. I don't think that people are created by accident. I think that we're all Great. here for a purpose. And the mental conditioning of the world of what it is to be important, successful, and all these things, they're very skewed into materialism and misalignment and it gets you off a path where you're you're so disconnected from yourself and from what's yep. important and from what's true and so yeah. finding your way back to authenticity to what lights you up i do believe that god divine creator whatever is comfortable for people wants you to get there because yep. it's meaningful to other people and i'm sure you could speak to this better than than i could but you can have the same level of fulfillment and meaning and contribution with zero bucks in your bank or yep. infinity bucks in your bank because everything else that's most important is aligned and you feel good about it and you know it. It goes back to that non-attachment. I think that's what I learned the most during that period was whatever is broken down can be rebuilt in different ways. You know, that I, I learned the resiliency of truly relying on, uh, you know, my, my, my inner life, my spiritual life, a relationship with God as being the thing that was going to carry me through. And it was, you know, it's faith, man, right? So it's the faith in the unseen. I didn't know where it was going to take me, but it was just looking for whatever was that perceivable next step to take uh, and keeping my eyes open, you know, and it's just, just getting up every day uh, and uh, brainstorming ideas and putting myself out there. And I think the main thing for me during that time period is I really embraced what I now have defined as failure rule number five, which is you are not your failures. I, I did not identify with my failure events. I quickly shrugged it off. I mean, I, I described that one day of, of despair, right? But it didn't last long. You know, I shrugged that off very quickly and began catching a new vision or multiple potential visions of my life to go chase after uh, and did that with enthusiasm. Uh, and I was not going to be bogged down by some kind of false notion of having a, a diminished sense of self uh, from a reputa reputational standpoint because of that event. Uh, if anything, I was more, uh, in the end, more convic convicted and convinced of the value of chasing after difficult things and taking risks uh, and, and trying to make them even more calculated in the future, but still being a risk taker. So I, in, in many ways, it kind of made me double down. I mean, even the job that I had next was a financial planning practice with, with no salary. So it was still kill or be killed every day. Right. So I it still didn't fall into any sort of safety umbrella even after that and hadn't for many years. Um, you know, it wasn't until I was almost 40 that I actually had my first W-2 job as an adult. Wow. Well, I, tax form states, you know, where you get a salary, right? So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I love all that. And it's so important. It, 
you know, people will, it goes back to kind of like the identity or the ego and not serving you. Some people will still identify with these past traumas that they had as the kid yeah. or like the failure. Oh, I was bankrupt. So this means that, right? This I was means I am a failure and I can't do X and nobody will talk to me. Nobody respect my competency, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, you got to eschew that shit right off the bat. Just get it out of your head, man. <laughs> yeah, and and it's so true because if you look at how ridiculous the statement is, you know, I can relate it to skateboarding. And if you skateboard, it's very hard. And so because I didn't land a kickflip that one time doesn't mean I can't skateboard. It means skateboarding is mother effing hard. And even exactly. if I could land it every time, I might not land it this time. And maybe it took me 2,000, 3,000 failures to get that. And Jordan Peterson wrote about it in his book, you know, don't bug kids while they're skateboarding. You learn yep. so much about failure from that sport. You learn about failure from being an athlete. You learn about failure from uh, music. You learn about failure from trying to do anything that is challenging and having a very powerful frame around failure can really influence your life in a night and day manner. If you mm. have a quality relationship with what fail in, I guess I'll, that's a good question is how do you define failure? What's your perspective or map around failure when it happens? And like, what do you think, you know, so you're like, Oh, you fail in a small way or big way. How does your, your mindset view that experience? So, I mean, you're touching on the reasons I wrote this book was to, to provide this framework premeditatively for people to think about failure in advance before it strikes, before they encounter it, so that they don't lose the extracted value that they can apply to those events. I mean, that's why I wrote The Five Rules of Failure. So that's exactly the point of this book. I wish I had this book when I was in my 20s. Uh, people who have read it have kind of told me the same thing. They wish they might have had, they had this book five years ago prior to X event or Y event. That's why I wrote the book. Um, so um, your your statement there about uh, um, trying to think what you what you just said there about what's the last part of your statement there that you're kind of prompting me on? Yeah, like how do you frame the experience of failure? Like how do you how do you view it when it happens? Like what's your perspective of like how do you even define failure? And then when it happens, what's your worldview of it? Because some people, it's a crushing worldview. I have right. failed. So this is, you know, I am this, I should never try again. And I am a failure. You know what I mean? Our failure is bad. You know, the last thing I want to do is, is fail. And so they have a very limiting and debilitating frame around what failure is and when they experience it. Yeah. So I actually took the time in the book to write um, a definition of terms. So I have kind of a glossary. And so I have my own definitions of some of these, you know, known terms and new, new terms that I kind of introduce in the book. So I define failure as such. The term failure is used within the text in the broadest possible manner, inclusive of the cumulative events of tragedy, struggle, and hard times that intertwine with the myriad realities of the human condition and inclusive both of avoidable failures that strike as a result of mistakes, misjudgments, and dereliction and unavoidable failures that visit us by virtue of uncontrollable circumstances, the actions of others, and the ramifications of larger macro events in the seen and unseen worlds. So that's my definition of failure. So it's very, very broad. Failure could be something as uh, uncontrollable as sickness or, or war touching your life in a certain way or the life of loved ones, or it could be something very specific like an entrepreneurial failure or something like an ethical failure uh, or just something that touches you by virtue of, you know, participating in the volatility of the free market, where you couldn't have controlled it, but you're just you're you're a player in this, and and you're affected by it. It could be that 
uh, you have failures in life induced by, uh, you know, the resulting actions of a pandemic. Who knows? It could be any of those things, right? Uh, and then I go on to define success very differently, too, than I think the way most people define success. So success is defined as um, it's used within the text as a measure of someone being in alignment with their calling journey. It does not correlate to a customary understanding of worldly success attached to the optics of stability, comfort, comfort recognizable prestige, or measurable financial wealth. Wealth. The success referred to within texts may carry any or all of these qualities as a byproduct, but these qualities are not necessary for it to manifest. Success is only valued within this text as an indicator of someone fulfilling the promptings of their internal spirit voice and joining with the mysterious, tumultuous meaning of their calling journey. Therefore, it is possible that someone can be mired within the chaos of an extreme failure moment and simultaneously submerged within a profound success moment due to the ability for failure to pull someone succinctly into the current of their calling journey. And it's that last sentence that really, to me, is the point, right? Like, so the, the case studies that I go through in the book, most of their failure moments or, or the failure events that punctuate their story truly are the catalyst for what made them maximize their unique talent stack in the world uh, and give the world what it needed from them uniquely, right? So it's this idea that failure purifies. Failure rule number one is failure purifies. The phoenix must burn to emerge, right? And it's that burning that failure applies to us that often allows our inner phoenix to emerge so that we can become what we're supposed to become. You know, and it, it, the idea of failure purifies is, you know, as it's purifying you, these flames, you're, you're leaving behind, you know, the burnt ash of old thinking, the burnt ash of old faulty foundations so that new ones can be formed and reborn, right? It's the cycle of death and rebirth metaphorically within our lives. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of gold in what you're sharing right there. And the way that you're, you're sharing it, it seems like there's an understanding that failure is inevitable and a very necessary part of the process, no matter what you're going to be doing. And it could be a small failure. It could be a monumental failure, um, but failure is going to happen. And one way that I think about it is, um, you know, let's say you've got your, your calling journey, how you phrase it, right. And, and what, God is meant for you and what you're meant to do. That's, that's natural innate to you, to your unique skills and gifts and talents and passions and all these different things. And if you veer off your life too far, where it's so opposite what you came to do, uh, yeah. God or the universe will explode that for you. Boom. It's put you down mm -hmm. to, you know, absolute bare minimum. So it can teach you the way to go, to rebuild, to let go of this as a necessary thing. And if you're a little bit better at uh, self-reflection, of self-understanding and awareness and actually lining up to those things that, you know what, this is what I'm passionate about. You're going to have smaller failures that are kind of pinballing you back and forth. You don't have to go through the, the massive ones with enough sure. awareness, right? There seems to yeah. be, you know, this correlation of, you know, seeing the feedback that's being offered, right? It's like, you know, putting your hand on something hot while you take it off right away or not notice for a bit. Now all of a sudden sure. the hand is mangled because you just really weren't getting the memo. It got hotter and hotter. And um, so when someone yeah. like, how do you, how do you see like for you now, let's say everything tomorrow goes away, uh, your, all your businesses crumble, uh, you know, then you get in a car accident and then everything is the worst and, and all of your successes are now gone. How do you frame that experience of failure? Like what's the thought that gets you through? 
Well, just to comment on one thing you said there in terms of big failures versus small failures and the utility of small failures kind of ping-ponging you back just to keep you in alignment versus having you drift off right into the ditch, right? Absolutely. Like this book is not like saying, it's not like failure porn, right? It's not saying go out and just take crazy risks and just go fail and it doesn't matter and, you know, go big and go home no matter what. That's not what I'm saying. Like, yes, obviously, optimally, uh, it's best to, uh, you know, avoid failure or to uh, encounter it minimally and to mitigate it as much as possible. So that, that's just obvious, right? Um, uh, but in terms of, yeah, and then also your, your comment about the corrective nature of failure, right? It, it's almost like this disciplinarian uh, in our lives, right? And, and I think that's true, but I think it also does does take uh, analysis in the event because some failure, failure events might rightly be interpreted as, uh, you know, a, a stop sign. Like, hey, you should not be going this direction. You need to go another direction. Uh, other times, it is just a refining mechanism for you to keep going in that direction, but going it differently, right? If that direction is still in alignment with your calling journey. So sometimes it's a stop sign. Sometimes it's just, you know, kind of a, a refining mechanism. I mean, more of a yellow light, you know, keep keep going, but proceed with caution. Change the way you're going, right? So I think there's there's that element of it too. But in terms of uh, of being stripped of everything, right? It's happened to me so many times already. So it's like, and I wrote this book because I've just learned just the lessons of non-attachment, of not over-identifying with pursuit, but still being passionate and enthusiastic about them, creating a portfolio of pursuits, to have multiple pursuits, to make sure that I always have a surplus of solitude and silence in my life, to hear that internal spirit voice, to keep that channel open with the divine, to, 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 to kind of, you know, try to interpret that mysterious signaling of, what might be my next best step and even to imagine and plan for if this then that you know kind of contingencies should x go away and x go away and this happens what might i do in that scenario so i'm always thinking about catastrophe i'm always thinking about uh, uh you know if if, if 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 this piece of my life changed or shifted or this one broke or crumbled how would i um you know reposition myself uh, and what would that kind of cascading look like? So I think it's just um, having the right imagination to know that things are not static, that nothing is safe, uh, and taking joy in that, in the creativity of being able to reimagine multiple lives that could potentially be invoked. You just put on the shelf uh, in case of, of necessity. I love all that. It's really practical. And you've, you've spoken about this a, a couple of times how do you view authenticity and and how do you even maybe help people who maybe they're not being authentic? I don't know. I just see out in the world, there's very few authentic people who can stay within their power of who they are. You know, maybe it's in the face of different ideologies. Maybe it's in the face of adversity. Maybe it's in the face of failure, but how do you help people find their authentic selves? And how does that relate to failure when, when you speak about it in your book? So I, I think it's it's difficult to pinpoint, but we know authenticity when we see it, and we know authenticity within ourselves when we're living it, right? To kind of answer your question with a negative, uh, we also know inauthenticity when we see it or when we feel it. Uh, Stephen Pressfield, the author of uh, The War of Art, talks about this a lot, about how when people aren't truly uh, chasing after their calling, many times because their safety files and their and their and they're married to notions of safety and they're afraid to go after it, they often develop, manifest some sort of sickness, whether it be 
uh, emotional repression, uh, physical sickness, even mental, psychological, whatever it is, even if the externals or everything on paper looks good and they, and they got the house and they got the, you know, a nice family and a nice job and all that thing. And those things are not bad, of course. Like none of this is against those good things. They're all very good things. But if those things come at the expense of you chasing after and aligning with something unique in you that burns inside you that you ought chase and you're muzzling that internal spirit voice and pressing that down because you're afraid that it might cause some sort of necessary chaos in your life to chase after, then you're going to have some trouble, right? Uh, I define authentic in the book as well, um, and I define it this way. Uh, it's using this book's title and within its text as a noun that describes one who manifests their being in the world and beings capitalized in the way that Jordan Peterson would, being in the world that is congruent with her true inner self. Striving to be an authentic is a goal that requires a spectrum perspective. As identifying the nature of your inner self is a moving target and attempting to manifest it accurately in the world is just as fluid and difficult. Hence, an authentic strives to be one with their inner self as much as is possible. An authentic will experience varying degrees of success on the authenticity spectrum, depending on the fluid nature of variable circumstances. So kind of what I mean there in terms of the fluidity and the spectrum of authenticity, right? So I think of... Uh, the time that uh, I started my career in fintech and commercial banking, formal corporate job, this was almost 10 years ago now, uh, I had come out of the online lending space, which the juxtaposition between those two spaces, like, you know, one, they're almost like, one was like, you know, subprime kind of online stuff uh, versus this corporate, much more formal buttoned up kind of atmosphere, right? So it was like, almost like going from being a porn star to a regular actor. So it was a very different kind of migration <laughs> for me, right? And here I am, I'm like, you know, I had spent most of my life being purveyor of punk rock and, and payday loans and writing spy novels. And even when I was in the music industry, even my attorneys had neck tattoos, right? So I come from a very different environment, owning a gym and dealing with like, you know, professional wrestlers, right? So lowbrow shit, right? And then I move into this corporate environment and I felt like a fraud. I had imposter syndrome. You know, I felt like I didn't fit in. Like I had to all of a sudden like be, feel like I had to have a less aggressive presence and lower my total voice and cover up my tattoos and you know i had to kind of learn the language requirements and all that and i felt inauthentic but what i learned over time uh, particularly as i kind of shed this notion of imposter syndrome uh, and kind of more embrace what i talk about in the book which is um don't fake it till you make it believe it till you become it fuck imposter syndrome right so i believed <laughs> it until i became it and as i became and learned to uh, expand my authentic self, I realized that's really what it was. I wasn't, I wasn't inauthentic. I just hadn't learned to adapt yet. And as I learned to adapt, my authentic self grew, became more multidimensional. I didn't lose my old self, right? I still have the same personality traits that I always had, but just now expanded. And now I'm more adaptable to different circumstances and different social and professional requirements in different settings, right? So I think that's what I mean by authenticity is not really fixed and it is a moving target. And it's something that we're constantly going to have to like check ourselves on. Like, what am I doing now to remain authentic as life is changing, as my challenges are changing, as my, my social context is changing? How do I remain authentic in this, you know, ever evolving world? Because we're beings in motion in a world in motion. And so that's the challenge, right? It's not just this fixed thing. Like I am this and I will always be this. And if I'm not this, then I'm not authentic. It's not that fixed. Um, yeah, absolutely. You touched on a lot of great ideas and, and topics there. I'm curious if you want to dive a little deeper into imposter syndrome, because I think that's a really 
important one. A lot of people really struggle with that, right? So you you transition and you're going into a, a totally different world. You don't have the mastery of the skill sets yet, but you have an alignment and a belief that you can get them. So you're not yeah. there a hundred percent yet, but you're willing to work towards it. You're willing to to make to that spot. And and I think that's the challenge that people have is like they're not at this mastery level that they aim to be, that they aspire to be. So since they have to start at the beginning, and as I like to refer to as like a white belt, right? Well, we all start as white belts. And uh, there's a quote or a saying that that says like a black belt is a white belt that just never gave up. You know, mm. and then we have these ideas. So, but the problem is because we're not there yet, people even they don't start, or if they're there, they feel like a fraud. And so, how do you how do you help people make peace with that imposter syndrome as they're learning the mastery of what they want to pursue? I think it's just that awareness, right? It's constantly reminding yourself, it's okay for me to approach this with a beginner mindset. Let me do it explicitly. Let me even tell my colleagues or whoever I'm working with them, whatever it might be. Hey, I'm new at this. Walk me through how this works. Can you remind me how this works? I'm new at this. Don't be afraid to be the newbie. Um, and try to attain your mastery as quickly as possible. Uh, still put out an air of professionalism, you know, coupled with some explicit curiosity. But don't be afraid to just admit that you don't know yet, right? Uh, and don't try to peg yourself to your old ego uh, from some other discipline where you had mastery, right? Get rid of that nostalgic thinking. I mean, what you did before is great. It built up some um, some skills to learn how to learn. But now you're back at the beginning again. And something else you got to learn. You got to learn something new. So you got to go in with an empty slate, right? I mean, I'm experiencing that right now, even in my job, as I've kind of shifted into learning a whole new product set, uh, working with people who've been working with this product set, set for decades, even, uh, and they use lingo and acronyms, and uh, you know, they have uh, process references that I'm still I still have many gaps on. So every day I still have to invoke this beginner mindset. Like I'm almost 50 years. I've been doing 50 years old. I've been doing this for 10 years. You would think I'd have all this mastery, but that's actually what I love about it is that the mastery never really is complete. There's always something new to learn. I'm always having to put my ego in check and to find a way uh, to embrace new information and new discovery. Uh, and I think the ego really is the big thing there, right? Everybody wants to be perceived as knowing what they're doing, knowing it all, having the answers and not having to answer questions with questions. Um, but uh, I think, um, you know, those that really get a lot out of their work and give a lot to the work are the ones that can put the ego aside and, and find a way to keep the curiosity train rolling and, um, and, and then learn and grow and achieve degrees of mastery as a result of that approach. Absolutely. And it seems like one of the ideas you're referring to is just the idea of humility, humility at the beginning and also through your quest for mastery, right? It's the idea in martial arts and in Zen, the beginner's mind, right? Every day is, is a new opportunity to learn something. And then it would, it would also make me think that that would be a tool for avoiding avoidable failures. And I'm sure yeah. that's in your book as well. And I'm curious if you, if you touch on that as well, like what are some reasons why people fail when it's completely avoidable? I think mm. that the lack of humility and the ego, 
when if you can put those aside, you know, I see it at the gym where, and I see it in martial arts where people get hurt because maybe they're lifting too much weight incorrectly, right? And then all of a sudden they hurt their body. You're in a martial arts gym and and uh, someone is learning to fight and rather learning how to spar. They're, they're, they want to win the fight because they're unfamiliar with combat at this point. So then somebody who's a little bit further off has to pin them one because they didn't listen, you know, or in jujitsu, you know, you need to tap. And, and if they don't know, know how to tap and you get the wrong person who doesn't have the right intent for that sport, they could really harm someone for a long time. So it seems like these could lead to financial failures, uh, relationship failures, and, and many other, mm-hmm. many other types. Yeah. I think, I think you're, you're touching on, you know, multiple themes in the book. So I'm drinking coffee right now out of a, a mug with an octopus on it. Right. So, um, I talk about um, this quote from Gene Simmons of Kiss in the book where he says it's better to be an octopus than a fish. If one of your uh, tentacles gets severed, you have seven more to swim with, right? And that aligns with the portfolio pursuits mindset, having multiple pursuits. And you can't do that unless you're constantly embracing a beginner's mindset to build these new tentacles as other ones get severed off. And that can happen just generally in your life with interests, pursuits, businesses, jobs, whatever it is, and within the context of even a corporate job where you're constantly having to learn new things, you embrace new things, you realize that in order to have staying power and to have uh, the widest amount of mastery over time that you don't want to get stuck in just the same uh, area of subject matter expertise. You're constantly going to want to stretch yourself and find ways to be at the bottom uh, of, of, of an area of expertise and learn your way up, right? So it's this you know, make reinvention your, your utmost skill kind of in every sphere of your life. Uh, and if you're doing, you can't do that without constantly shedding your ego, uh, you know, you know, putting on that beginner's mindset again uh, and intentionally going after what is new and what is strange and, and, and chasing that adjacent possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you learn so much quicker, you know, and again, just to use a martial arts reference, you'll have a beginner in there. And when you have a good martial arts teacher, they don't think they know everything. They listen. They have this ability to listen completely to this beginner because then all of a sudden this new fresh mind to they all of a sudden bring an idea. You're like, "Hmm, let's let's test that and maybe add it, you know, to the ingredients or whatever the case is. But also from a relationship perspective perspective there's value there it's a way you carry yourself in the world it's respecting and honoring another mm-hmm. human uh individual you know what i mean and their uh ability to have value and have a perspective and have meaning right and so that's a gift in yes. itself just to, yes. to feel heard to feel listened to to be appreciated it's just a simple and fundamental thing and you know when when you do have failure it's nice to have friends you see who's in your corner you right. Yeah. You see how everybody might leave, right? You have all these kind of movies where they have all the money, right? And then they lose the money and then everybody goes like, oh, well, maybe they weren't the friend that I thought they were, you know? And so that's a, that could be a painful lesson as well. And I'm curious in your book, do you touch on, I think in the notes, it showed like a little bit of humor, like how do you use humor in the face of failure? How important is that, that role? And just in daily life, it's one for me where, I think in daily life I can, you know, crack some jokes and I'm pretty funny, but I'm also very serious, you know, like, you know, I try to crack the jokes, but everything, even in the podcast, it's funny because like, I'll just, I'll do the podcast. We'll talk about spirituality and the meaning of life. And then I'll go downstairs and I'll just make a ridiculously inappropriate joke. And my wife was like, how do you talk about why? And then you say that, you know, I was like, I don't know. You know, it's just like, I'm just like, I'm just like a caveman who's just attempting yeah, to be yeah. alive in this very strange reality. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I just love people who are able to, you know, um, bring light, you know, 
comedy to serious situations to life to make it a little bit easier it's so nice like it, i see it as like serious and i'm like a very martial about it the martial arts comes in and i just love people who are can be light about it who can add humor and it just it eases up the whole scenario yes it eases the tension of tra traversing through certain failures and hard times 100 i think humor is so important particularly healthy self-deprecating humor not self-deprecating humor where you really have a poor self-image and the expression of that, right? But an actual healthy self-deprecating humor where you have a good self-image, you're going through something difficult, and you're able to use humor to poke fun at yourself in a way where you still have your integrity at the end of the joke, right? So it's like, I mean, the book, I mean, like you said, I'm quoting everybody from you know, Aristotle to Rodney Dangerfield, right? So I have a chapter on failure humor, uh, which, by the way, is a term I feel like I invented, but I met Bill Burr last summer after a show, smoking a cigar with him, and talk to him about the idea and he's like that's exactly what my my comedy is it's failure humor right so i guess i got proof of concept validation from bill burr on the idea of failure humor right uh and um you know i i, I have a quote in that chapter where i say um uh, and uh sometimes you need to take yourself less seriously in order to seriously put your life back together again right and i found that to be true and like in some of my hardest times like i've leveraged you know my own sense of humor or kind of indulged in, you know, consuming comedy. And that has just been a, a true blessing. It invokes creativity to my circumstances. I, I've learned the value of wabi-sabi, the Japanese term for the beauty of imperfection, uh, which then, you know, I'm able to kind of leverage a, a sense of wabi-sabi to, to uh, you know, in, enhance my humor. But yeah, I write about that in the book, Failure Humor. I mean, I write about Louis C.K. and Bill Burr and Dennis Leary, his show Rescue Me from the mid-2000s. Uh, was a show that I absolutely loved and related to on many levels through many hard times I was going through. And I, I certainly credit that for being, you know, part of the uh, the recipe uh, of my uh, of my uh, resolution through some of those failure times. Absolutely. I love all that. I'm trying to bring up uh, this. There's if people Google it, it's it's a tree of life geometry and it kind of goes up. Right. And you've got like the middle six and then on the right uh, and left hand side, they're the same here. I'm just going to I'm just going to pull one up just because let's see if this will work. I haven't done a screen share forever. Share screen. There. Select. So hopefully people can see that. So that's kind of like you know, the, the tree of life. Okay. And this, I'm going to butcher what the teaching was, but I have this one friend who is very fascinating person. And so what he said was the middle ones were the body. Okay. So you obviously want to get up to the apex and you just see it as an energetic grit. Okay. Energy being at the very bottom. Now on the left here, this is where you'd have like your job, right. And on the, on the right hand side, you'd have your friends. So he just gave this example where, you know, you got a job that's kind of okay. Right. And yeah. then what you do with your friends is you go to the pub on the weekend and you watch sports. That's about yeah. it. But when you go up to here and you got more meaningful, you're kind of going for your life passion pursuit. Well, on the mm -hmm. right hand side, you've got more energetic experiences. You've got heli skiing, you got whitewater rafting, you got stand up comedy, you got stuff that inspires the energy. But what happens That's is right. what happens is this network is it fuels the other yep. side. And so after you do yes. this like project where for you, in here, you've got, uh, you know, on the second round, you've got um, one of your music labels, right? Pat, and yep. then you've got another thing and another thing. Well, eventually that goes up to here and you're getting into your legacy, right? And yes. that becomes your life legacy. And then those experiences, maybe that's, um, I don't know, again, higher energy events that come to this beautiful culmination. And he just, you know, he shared that mm -hmm. example of how 
they're sharing energy back and forth. So if you're just stuck on right. one, you're not you're not, you're not balanced, and there's going to be some disease. There's going to be disharmony. There's going to be this internal grumbling, like something's off. Where we need to balance our life. Where this is a part of it. it is not just about making money. It's not a, just about working hard and selling the most amount of books, or just killing yourself to have the most amount of meaning to solve the world's biggest problems. Yes, you are yes. also allowed to live, to have family, to have friends, yes. to have experience, to have joy, to have freedom. And then if you go too far over there and you're on a four month bender with your buddies and you're doing all these things, you know, it's time to come on back, right? Okay. Because we've swum okay. a little bit too far and we got a little bit lost on the way. So for a period of time, maybe, okay. Now we want to think about that as in terms of energy. And I really like that diagram to see, oh, okay, it is this balance. And we get that internal knowing when we're either mm -hmm. slacking off or we need to put a little bit more energy or we maybe we need a break. We've been going so hard at this goal. It's been good. We've got progress. But you know what? We need a date night with the wife. We need we need a boys weekend where I call the boys. We come over. We drink some beer. We watch the fights. Or we we go camping. And if you don't drink, you go camp and do whatever. You know what I mean? And so I just yeah, love yeah, your, yeah. your two cents on that. That is beautiful. That's, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's very reflective, I think, of what my journey has been, right? It's the toggling back and forth. And as you go up each ladder, you still have the, the professional and personal spheres. But both of those spheres elevate at each stage of life. They, they kind of cumulatively gather more meaning in each of them. And then they, they also feed off each other. So I think that's totally true for me. I mean, the book itself is really a symbol of that. So like failure rules really encompasses like, you know, everything from gains in understanding of spirituality and philosophy uh, to uh, business uh, knowledge to uh, just general, um, you know, uh, extracting the joy out of life, whether it be uh, comedic stuff, whether it be relationships, whether it be uh, just daily gratitude on, on, on every little thing in our life. Right. And, this puts a cap on all my disparate interests and experiences and culminates it all up. And legacy is one of the reasons I wrote it. Like uh, not in the sense of preserving my legacy for my ego's sake after I'm gone, but more of, Hey, I'm here. I've experienced all these things. I think I'm able to synthesize this in a way that might bless others. And even if not at scale, which would be great, at least for my children and, and maybe my, my grandchildren or great-grandchildren, there's something here that maybe they can get a sense of, of who I was and more importantly, um, you know, what I may have learned in life that they can get something out of, right? And it's having that kind of like, you know, it's that, uh, it's, the, it's, it's, your, 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 um, it's, it's your immortality project really is what it is, right? And I think those that engage in that, find meaning just in the process of doing it outside of the meaning that they hope that it'll actually uh, produce after they're gone or even while they're here. Yeah. And that's a big question. I don't think a lot of people consider is their legacy. What do they leave behind? What do they want to leave behind? And it doesn't need to be a million books for every single yep. person ever. If it's your, you know, cousin's grandson and say, Hey, this was a member of your family. Look at what they did. Look at that example. And it, it immediately, be yeah. immediately becomes more possible for them to achieve. Just like you'll look at the stories where people grow up in poverty over and over in, even in America where you have the land of opportunity and the one person breaks out. Now they go, Oh, it's the four minute mile for that That's family. Right. 
They had it's now done. had that opportunity. It's 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 absolutely, but there are no more excuses. It's There's done. An outlier template that has emerged that they can now look to to potentially replicate. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a beautiful gift, and that's enough. And then the person leaving that legacy or attempting to share that wisdom down, that is enough too. That's like, hey, this. I hope this helps. This is a very yeah. challenging experience. I hope that you have peace and yeah. ease and grace and success. I had a hell of a roller coaster. <laughs> you know what I mean? This thing was, yeah, yeah. this thing was terrifying. Yeah. You know what I mean? I almost lost everything yeah. all the time. And I yeah. hope this little bit will help you and like ha have the best time. You know, I, I really yeah. want you to, to learn from what I've done. And it's a very selfless, um, uh, selfless and responsible thing to do. Because I think in the, in the day we used to have that more, we used to have the gr grandparents wisdom around the table. We used to honor right. our, the right. wisdom from our, our forefathers a lot more. Right. And now we've really lost that. And I think that's it's such a tragedy because when you're a kid, you think you know everything. And then when you're an adult, you realize what an idiot you were. And then, you yeah. know, but then the kids are coming up and you're trying to tell them, but, and you're like, bro, I still don't know what's going on. So there's no way that you have any idea what's going on. You know, there's yeah. not possible. And so, you know, the wisdom from our, from our elders and our life and life experiences shared in an authentic way is incredibly valuable, even within just our family unit and ideally yep. for other people to see as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly right. You articulated that perfectly. I mean, I think of like, you know, what we see now emerging online, which in some ways has replaced, whether it's the, you know, the grandfather at the table verbally passing down uh, his lessons or wisdom or stories or potentially replacing even, even other more localized leaders that might have smaller in-person audiences, whether it be religious leader or civic leader, or what might, what have you. We now see these more online figures, right? It's almost like it's the age of the guru, although many of them wouldn't want to be called gurus. I mean, you have the Jordan Petersons, the, the Ryan Holidays, or even like a Russell Brand or what, whoever. And people are looking to them to help them synthesize a very complex, fast-moving, strange new world that we live in that is changing daily. But we're bombarded with all kinds of hard to digest messaging, right? And I think there's a real value in that. And I think that's one of the positive outcomes of, of the information age here is that there is the ability for certain uh, motivated, gifted, articulate people to dispense those kinds of insights uh, for those that are looking for it. And I think there's a lot of value in that, especially for young people and specific, specifically for young men who I think struggle um, very much uniquely right now uh, with how to interpret the world and find find their way forward, uh, you know, uh, in it. Yeah, absolutely. I only hope that we can have some more influential leaders uh, for everyone, really, that um, it's hard because society doesn't really push those, you know, kids yeah. idols are musicians and TV stars and musicians are great and athletes yeah. are great, but they might not be the best role models, you know, finding these really great role models that people can look to and, um, you know, be inspired about and then have some sort of yeah. guidance in life. Right. There, a lot of them are manufactured. And I actually, it was interesting through the, uh, the, last two years, I, I don't like saying the word cause I'm already censored enough. Um, but as that happened, the New York Times and other places, they manufactured people out of nowhere. 
to create propaganda like that wanted to come on the podcast like out of nowhere with all of the talking points with all that manufactured manufactured instagram followers manufactured on on the biggest platforms new york times things like that articles to right so that's the leaders that they want to force feed that wanted to come on your podcast yeah well i mean because they would manufacture the person and then they would so obviously they didn't look at what the show was about (laughs) so um But you can see that they manufactured these people, right, to be influencers of the young people, right? And so yeah. finding these great leaders would be uh, so key. Um, one thing I wanted to ask is you, you know, when you're talking about these multiple levels and we've got family and we've got our business pursuits, how do you manage your time um, in pursuing those businesses? Because it seems like one camp is like work all day, hustle, 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 grind. And the other side's a little bit more balanced. Uh, I think a more balanced approach. And I can only imagine with all your pursuits, I'd just be curious how the heck you manage your time and what you'd recommend for people who are trying to balance that family, that entrepreneurship, because in my own world, just to do the podcast, I could work all day, every day and still only do a quarter of what's available to move things forward. And I'm always trying to balance that in my own world to make sure that I'm doing enough and more than enough, but I'm not burning out. And I'm also valuing my friends and, and my family yes. and my um, time that I need to go to the gym and take care of myself. I think it's phasing, layering and outsourcing, like the balance of those, those three things help me balance, right? So different pursuits have different timelines. One might be slower and I'm okay with that. And it's prioritized against something else that has no flexibility or, uh, it's layered in like for net, like for instance, my record labels, I take very little time and low maintenance right now. Um, not, I'm, I'm not actively putting out records. I have some active bands out on the road that I work with here and there, but it doesn't take a lot of time because the work's already been done. Uh, you know, revenue is kind of produced while I sleep from a streaming standpoint and all of that. Right. So I, I don't, I make sure I balance that because I know that all my efforts right now are going into failure rules and promoting this and building the the kind of tentacles around the book that I'm going to build over time, uh, you know, to keep this message going and potentially write other books and speak. And I built a merchandise company attached to this book and a bunch of other things. Right. So it's, but, but the record labels are still there, right. They still have a function. It's just, there's a minimized amount of maintenance to it. So it's the phasing, the layering, and then outsourcing as much as possible. So like for the book, I worked with Scribe Media and Minecraft Publishing, they assisted in the editing and the iconography and helping me with the audio book and the marketing. Uh, so they did PR and then I hired another PR firm from the mu- on the music space to get me uh, podcast interviews in the music space, hired a firm to do my Amazon ad campaign optimization, right? So it's like at, at that level, I'm just kind of managing a variety of agencies and entities that I've outsourced that's doable while still maintaining an executive job in the fintech space. That's doable while still making sure I get to the gym three to four days a week and still find time to go hiking and cycling and hang out in my hot tub and smoke cigars and, you know, unpack everything and have time with friends at cigar lounges and go to punk rock shows and do everything that I love to do, hang out with my kids, right? You know, all this stuff. So it is a orchestra, you know, an orchestration, you know, you have to kind of have orchestral swagger as you design this. Uh, but for me, it's been the layering, the phasing, uh, and the outsourcing that's allowed me to do it the most. I love that answer. Yeah, because it's it's the practical application of each level 
right? And so you kind of have to start where you do it mostly yourself and then you can hire out because you know exactly what needs to be done, right? And then it right. scales from the abundance that you create from the project, right? And they're all kind of balancing out. So once you get to a certain level, you're like, this is exactly what needs to be done, right? You kind of go into a management role, right? That you've yes, earned exactly. so you know how to manage it and it takes you a lot less time, but you know that you have proof of concept where the business or the intent should keep rolling and keep growing so you can invest in that. So you're not trying to stay forever in the same spot, right? So no matter what the pursuit is, you know, for many people growing one successful record label would be their be all and end all for, for some people would be writing one book and be able to speak and live off that. And you recognize right. that once you do your one pursuit and you can do it to uh, a level of, you know, mastery and completion, there will be another phase, right? And so you That's can, right. you know, you want to be able to automate and let go of that phase so you can move exactly into right. a new pursuit. So, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, you got it. Exactly. And even like within each pursuit, there's multiple phases. So like, you know, I know how to pump the brakes and not get, try not to get overextended. There's times where you still have to burn the candle to both ends. I have a chapter on that in the book. And I just recently got a tattoo on my leg of a candle with both ends burnt so there is that element sometimes right but generally i have balance i mean even with the book like i have a multi-year phase written on my whiteboard wall over here where i know what i'm doing each year and i don't try to overextend myself financially or from a, a time investment standpoint in any of those years i'm not trying to accelerate it too fast like i know that i need to do x y and z first and then year two i'm going to do this and experiment with that and so like the plan's already laid out it's balanced, it's stretched out reasonably so that I can enjoy the process, not get stressed by the process, not get overextended by the process and take the the, the pleasure and the meaning out of, of the journey, right? Uh, I want that all to be instilled in it, right? And so it's a matter of just planning, phasing, layering, outsourcing, uh, persistence, persistent patience, you know, um, just knowing that, yeah, I can go out and have a good time with my friends and forget about all this stuff. And then I can return to it tomorrow and I'll be able to flip that switch and get right back into it and know when to put it down and then to go uh, into some other area of my life that balances me out. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm reminded of, uh, oh, shoot, I'm, I hadn't, I'll hopefully remember it again, but there, oh yeah, there's seasons, right? So there's going to be a time, it's, it's knowing that there's going to be imbalance. Like that's a yes. part of it, right? So the burning the candle at two ends will be a part of it for a period of time. As it long just as you can't be a steady state. Right. Yeah, it's not yeah, there yeah. forever, right? It's like, okay, yeah. you know, I've got to be, this is just this little bit. And then I get to the next section. And then there's also the idea that people will greatly overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do yeah. in 10. And so yes. as you have this idea yes. and these goals set up, right, you're working you're like, oh, shoot, right, I'm trying to balance these things. Hold on, I got to manage it all. And you're really, really crushing it. And then it'll ease up and then you'll get space and, you know, then you'll be able to manage it a little bit better. But you're engaged in that, you know, season to season, right? It's, if you look at a farmer, it's a lot like that, right? They've got their growing mm -hmm. season, they've got their planting season, they've got their harvest, and they've got some time off. And when we go into entrepreneurship, it's a lot like that. And having that nuance and inner, yeah, like listening to your inner guidance, right? It's like, okay, you know, the, we need to pump the brakes a little bit here. This isn't a sustainable way to yeah. 
continue working. I'm going to burn out or, or, you know, I'm, I've, I've become a sex successful entrepreneur, but I've sacrificed all my relationships. You don't want to do that either. Right. You want to have, um, you know, that balance and understanding, but when you lay it all out, you, you have a more clear idea of where you're going, what you're willing to do to get it. And then a little bit more awareness when things go all funhouse mirror in your energy and what you're doing. That's exactly right. It's well put, particularly uh, your focus on there are times where you need to burn the candle both ends. And then there are times where you need to literally do nothing and you're just going on vacation for two weeks. Right. And it's like you zoom out. Right. And you zoom in and it seems like you're imbalanced in some way at, at almost every season where because not each season has a perfect, you know, equal percentage allocation to each area of your life. It doesn't work that way. But if you zoom out and you aggregate three, four, five, six seasons together, the aggregation of those seasons, if you're doing it well, will likely then reflect more of a balanced composite, right? Because you have different intensities in different seasons, uh, but they balance out over time in aggregate seasons stacked up on one another. And it's having that kind of long view uh, as you're approaching things that, that can really help you sustain. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. And we're also just kind of touching on the idea of the long game. Right. It is the long game. You know, you don't have to go into each day super stressed out to get everything you need done. It's like, look, I have enough time to do this. I'm committed to doing this and I'm going to do what I can do today. And that's how it makes these bigger goals more manageable. And then you can chunk them down too to your first thing, your second thing. And you'd be amazed. We have a big goal to chunk it out to three years. Like, okay, or, you know, you know what, I actually need a year and I got to dedicate this much time and then just make sure you're plugging it in. And you'll say, oh, wow, in six months, yep. you know, time goes fast. And you're like, I've, I've already gotten to this point. This is great. And then you'll also know if you're a little bit behind saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to manage my time a little bit better. And you're going to get feedback. And it's why when you go to the gym, you should write down what you're doing. So you have feedback of what's working, what's not. And you can then reassess and try again. Just like when I was learning a kickflip, do I put my feet here? Do I, you know, you just, you're doing all of these micro adjustments forever until you get it. And then once you get it, you can get it again. The second one, once you've landed the first one, that second one comes shortly after. Right. And then a few weeks later, you can get them. Iterating off a foundation already that you've built. Yeah. That you've, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, this has been phenomenal. A very practical episode. I've enjoyed it very much. Is there anything that you wish that we had chatted about or that you want to bring up before we close the show? No, man, we covered a lot of ground and we naturally just kind of swerved into descriptions of many of the rules of failure and touched on many of the themes in the book just organically through the conversation. So I think this was a, a great conversation. Hopefully your listeners and your viewers dug it. And if they did go buy the book, Failure Rules, the five rules of failure for entrepreneurs, creatives, and authentics. My name is Andrew Thorpe King. No E on the end of Thorpe. You can find me at andrewthorpeking.com. Again, no E on the end of Thorpe. On the website, you can sign up for my free failure rules mini course, which also gets you on my email list. Find my Instagram, where I'm most active, at Andrew Thorpe King. Also, my YouTube channel, where you can see you know themes from the book come alive in a different way. Uh, and you can get the book anywhere books are sold, including a kick-ass audio book. Also, have a merchandise company you can get to through my website, Soul and Fire Supply Company, with some cool designs uh, based on the book. Uh, and I got a soundtrack, too. Spotify and Apple Music, the Failure Rules playlist uh, soundtrack, the actual songs I listened to while writing the book and songs that I listened to that literally got me through many of the hard times and failures that I detail in the book. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for the work you do. And uh, just preach everybody. I uh, appreciate everybody for watching. 
Awesome, man. Thanks so much for having me, man. This is this was a, a blast. Awesome, man. My pleasure. See you guys. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely incredible Andrew Thorpe King. I hope that you enjoyed that show, that you received practical tips for mastering failure because failure is inevitable. And if we have the most empowering perspective around failure, we can really learn to navigate life with a little bit more power. So if you enjoyed this, please share this episode on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you can. Um, consider becoming a member if you want to support the show. You can get access to a ton of great exclusive content and training and meditations and breath work and all kinds of things in the membership area. And you can do so for free or by donation if you go to mattbelair.com. And if you want to work with me and you want to work one-on-one or you want me to do a training for your group or even speaking, um, just hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com. I'd love to hear from you and work with you. Obviously, you know I work on everything from spirituality, life purpose, peak for peak performance, getting very clear on who you are, what you want to do in this world and how to do it with passion, with purpose, with power, with a mission. And so if you're interested in any of those topics, just hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com and I'd love to hear from you. So that is it. Thank you guys so much for listening to this show. I appreciate your time and attention and hope that this was valuable. Again, sending my love and appreciation out over the airwaves to you. So let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we close this show. Wherever you are in the world, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and let it out slowly, filling every cell, muscle, and fiber of your being with joy, peace, contentment, power, enthusiasm, faith, courage, and get ready to enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode.